At a baseball game, when a spectator wants to be close to the action, as close as possible, the best seats are directly behind home plate. Are those seats in back of the dugouts? But not so at a NASCAR race. I suppose if all you really wanted to do was feel the power and the rush of the cars, you could bring some earplugs and sit as close to the track as possible. But if you're really interested in the race and you'd like to see which driver wins and why, you need a seat with a higher vantage point. Views from the first five rows of the grandstand at a motor speedway are obscured by the catch fence. Watching from there, the cars blur by, and sitting that low, you can't see the overall action. That's why the best seats are higher up, way up above the asphalt. At most NASCAR tracks, the prime seating is above row 20. At Daytona and Talladega, you need to be no lower than row 40 preferably higher, and it's best to sit above a turn. The premier seats at Dover and Bristol and Martinsville are at the entrance to turn one. The turn is where most of the action is. Boy, when those cars enter a curve, they slow down, they bunch up, they start jockeying for position. NASCAR racing gets more intense in the turns. You pay attention to the turns. Now, I say all this to point out the fact that understanding the Bible is a lot like taking in a NASCAR race. In studying the Scripture, at times, you want to be up close to the action. You know, you learn a lot by putting yourself in Abraham's sandals when God tells him to sacrifice his son Isaac, or by sampling Joseph's emotions when the brothers who sold him as a slave return, begging him for help. Or imagine sitting in the boat with Peter walks on the water. How, what an experience that would have been. Or if you were at Lazarus' grave when Jesus raised him from the dead, wow, what an experience that would be. There's a lot to gain by getting up close and personal with your Bible. Actually putting yourself in the stories. But as with a NASCAR event, if you want to see the big picture, the whole of the Bible, If you're interested in who wins and why, you need a broader perspective. You need a seat where you can see the entire track. And that's what I hope to bring to you over the next eight weeks. We're going to take a broader vantage point. We're going to see the whole book, and we're going to focus on the turns. Think of your Bible as a racetrack with seven major turns. We begin at the starting line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then comes turn one. God creates a man and a woman and plops them down in a plentiful Eden, in a garden paradise. God and man enjoy fellowship with each other. They have an understanding, an agreed-upon terms. Call it a covenant. It's an arrangement between God and man. Yet the first couple, Adam and Eve, they sin and it shatters that relationship. They eat the fruit that God said was off limits and the sin contaminates the human race. Man falls from his original innocence. Now the arrangements between God and man, between man and woman, between man and nature are now altered. 
And God has to deal differently with the human race, so he initiates another covenant. And yet, despite the gracious agreement God constructs to maintain his relationship with man, life on earth goes from bad to worse. God even has to start over. He chooses Noah. God floods the earth but saves Noah's family. And when Noah's family exit the ark, they walk out into a frightful new world. Life is scary now. Humanity now faces new predators and people need new assurances. Another turn occurs in God's plan. God establishes a third covenant with mankind. But sadly, Noah's heirs blow their second chance to please God. Humanity rebels and they organize a global coup d'etat. God puts down the revolt at the Tower of Babel and it launches another turn in God's dealings. Rather than work with humanity as a whole, God now chooses a single family through whom he'll reach the world. He makes a fourth covenant with a man named Abram. Now God's covenant with Abraham becomes the blueprint for all God's future plans. He'll save us and return us to a garden through his covenant. All the covenants are pivotal, but the Abrahamic covenant is even more so. We'll talk about it in a few weeks, but God made his friend Abram three promises. A chunk of land, a people, and a blessing. Here's how we'll learn to remember the Abrahamic covenant. Sod, seed, and salvation. Now God's final three covenants grow out of this one that he made with Abram. Now let me admit, what I'm about to say is an oversimplification. I'll correct it later but it's helpful for now. The covenant that God will make with Moses involves the land, that is the sod. His covenant with David will focus on the nation or the people of Israel, the seed. And the new covenant that God establishes by Jesus is the blessing or our salvation. But all three of these final covenants grow out of the seminal covenant that God makes with Abraham. Remember where you'll find the action at a race. It's in the turns. And in the race of redemption, God makes his strategic moves through his covenants. They mark seven turning points in his dealings with mankind. Think again of a racetrack. The green starter's flag drops. At turn one, God creates the human race a man and a woman, and puts them in a garden. He establishes a relationship with Adam and Eve. But coming out of that first turn, these humans crash, and God establishes a new arrangement with Adam. But man crashes again. This time, God makes a covenant with Noah. Then we sin again. This time, an extremely patient God strikes a deal with Abraham. After Abraham... There's still three more curves in which God amplifies his covenant by making additional arrangements with Moses and David and then his son Jesus. And it's this last covenant, the new covenant, that takes us all the way back to where we started, to a garden paradise. But it's not the same garden. It's better. It's eternal. Revelation envisions the forever state And there's a river 
and there's fruit and there's trees. There's even the tree of life. The last time in scripture we saw this tree was after Adam sinned. He and his offspring were barred from this tree. But at the end of God's covenantal plan, we see ourselves sitting under its shade, eating its fruit, living forever. Hey, we're going to learn the story of the Bible is not just one of retrieval, of returning us home. It's a story of redemption, which is far better. See, mankind comes home to God, but we return in better shape than when we left. That's the story of the Bible. Clearly, the Bible is full of intrigue and calculated detail. God colors between the lines. But when you put the story of the Bible together, it's summed up in seven dramatic turns, in seven suspense-filled covenants. Tonight we'll tackle the first of those covenants, the Edenic covenant. But before we go further, let's be sure of what we mean when we speak of a covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. Call it an arrangement of relationship. It constitutes the terms that guide the partner's interactions. I think it's helpful to distinguish between a covenant and a contract. You know, when the United States of America expanded westward and our government signed many treaties with the Indians, often the Indians thought that they were making covenants. Sadly, our government saw those agreements as contracts to be broken. Reminds me of the chief sitting by his teepee out on the reservation. When one day a government agent approached him, he asked, he said, Chief Two Eagles, your people signed treaties with the white man, but it didn't work out so well for the Indian. What went wrong? Chief Two Eagles replied, he said, Well, when Indian in charge, no taxes, no debt, plenty buffalo, plenty beaver, medicine man free, Indian brave hunt and fish all day, and Indian squaw do all the work around the teepee. Chief leaned back, took a long drag on his peace pipe and sighed. White man dumb enough to try and improve on system like that. I'm sure there's a lot we can learn from the Indians. And the sacredness and specialness of a covenant is one of those lessons. A contract is an agreement entered into out of suspicion. See, the contract is needed because the two parties don't trust each other. A contract limits my responsibility and clarifies the least of what's expected. Whereas a covenant is a commitment born out of trust and respect. It's an agreement between folks who often love each other. A covenant outlines with, for both parties what they can do to work together for the common good. You know, when you buy a house, you sign a contract. You know, the seller's afraid that he won't get all he's asking. You're afraid you're not going to get all that you're buying. So to avoid being cheated, the parties are protected by a legal contract. But when you enter a marriage, you're not just signing a contract. You're entering into a covenant. See the difference? You're embarking on a relationship with someone you love and who loves you. A covenant outlines the expectations, but it doesn't limit our commitment. 
A covenant is based on love, and real love is limitless. Contracts are based on fear. Covenant, covenants are all about faith. And it's always been God's desire to have a covenant relationship with his people. A covenant is a faith-based relationship between God and us. And to really grasp God's covenants, you need to know God. The God of the Bible is relational. He's not some impersonal force. Don't think of God as spiritual electricity. You don't plug into the God socket and get a heavenly jolt. God is a person. He wants you to know him. God wants to know and be known. God desires relationship with his people. Remember, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. The Bible reveals to us that the true God is a triune God. He is one being who exists in three distinct persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which means that God has always existed in relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Son always pleases the Father. The Spirit magnifies the Son. The Bible declares that God is love, and from eternity past, God has always dwelt in a loving relationship. This is why throughout the Bible, God is always depicted in relation to his people. He was Israel's husband. He's now our father, even our shepherd. God reveals himself in the Bible through relationships. And this is why the only way to really apprehend theology is in the context of relationships. Try to decipher doctrine in the abstract and confusion reigns. Think of the thorny subject of predestination and free will. God chooses, but we have a choice. You'll rack your brain trying to reconcile those two doctrines until you put them in the context of a relationship. Say a parent and a child. You know, a parent knows what's best for his child. But he also wants his kids to learn to make wise decisions. When my children were small, I allowed them the opportunity to choose. While at the same time, I was framing their options in ways that directed their choice. For example, they could choose their friends. But I placed them in a pool of people who would make good friends. They could choose, but in a sense, their friends were chosen. My point is, you best understand theology through relationships. God's will is best grasped in the context of relationships and the covenants that he forms with his people. Ultimately, God loved, God's love sought for an object outside of himself to love. And this is why he created humankind. God fashioned the heavens and the earth. He sculpted heavenly bodies and heavenly beings. He made times and seasons. He spawned flora and fauna. But all that God created was intended to support the apex of his handiwork, the man and the woman. The humans were the only members of God's creation made in his image. His creation reflected his handiwork. But man was stamped with his very image. God loved the man and the woman. 
He bestowed on them great privilege and honor. He put the humans in charge of the rest of his creation, including the angels. Humanity would take dominion over all that God had made and rule by his side. Of all God created, he chose to partner or covenant with mankind. And the rest of the Bible is the working out of a series of covenants that God uses to engage man in a relationship with himself. This shouts out a profound truth, and that is that God is determined to have fellowship with man. God refuses to let our sin spoil his salvation. He is relentless in his attempts to reach us and convict us and forgive us and redeem us. Did you know this is the primary reason you were conceived and created? Some people think God made human beings to serve him or represent him or praise him, but his angels can do that far more efficiently than we can. If you haven't yet discovered the reason you exist, here it is. The God in heaven, the God who created all things and mankind wants a relationship with you. And God isn't interested in just any type of relationship. He always arranges a relationship by instituting a covenant. Before God enters into a relationship with us, he insists on an understanding between us, an agreement. Terms get laid out. Boundaries are set. Expectations are established. And God is the person who sets those terms. See, God doesn't allow you and I to decide what type of relationship we'd like to have with Him. You know, some folks try to relate to God a la carte. They pick from a menu the commands they want to keep, the details they want to believe. But no, God is the covenant maker. God dictates the terms of our fellowship, not us. It's interesting, everybody today, from politicians to porn stars, claim to have a relationship with God. But in reality, it all depends on their adherence to the terms of God's covenant. God isn't going to pitch in and hang out with folks until they accept His terms. This is why it's God's covenants throughout the ages that have given mankind a picture of what it really looks like for us to be in relationship with God. Of course, the idea of a covenant that God needs to structure or order a relationship with us implies that left to ourselves, we become out of order. In a perfect world with perfect people, there would be no need to draw up a covenant. Yet from the outset of the Bible, we learn that we no longer live in a sinless world. You know, the Bible consists of 1,189 chapters, and it takes just three before God's perfect utopia goes haywire. The man and the woman sin and rebel against God. In fact, you get the first hint of trouble in the second verse of your Bible. You know verse 1 by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But verse 2 reads, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. This is not what we would expect. Throughout Genesis 1, after every aspect of God's creation, we're told that it was good. In fact, verse 31 sums up all of God's creation by saying that it was very good. 
But in verse 2, the earth is without form and void. Something's wrong. In other words, the earth was unformed and unfilled. The Hebrew phrase is tohu wabohu. The terminology usually describes the aftermath of judgment. Imagine a battlefield after a battle, or perhaps a town after a tornado. The landscape is obliterated. In Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth is a shapeless, empty, ominous mess, just a vast sea of chaos and confusion, which reminds me of the three professionals, the doctor, the engineer, and the lawyer. They were all arguing over whose occupation was considered the oldest. Well, the doctor noted that God performed surgery on Adam to create Eve. He opened up Adam's side, proving that the medical profession was the, was the oldest. Well, the engineer, he pointed to God's creation of the heavens and the earth. He pointed out that in just six days, God started with chaos and confusion and constructed the universe. Surely, his was the oldest profession. That's when the lawyer jumped in. He said, where do you think the chaos came from? Well, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, casts an interesting light on Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. We're told, thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it, To be inhabited. Notice God says in Isaiah that the earth was not created in vain or tohu. It's the exact same Hebrew word used in Genesis 1, verse 2. See, Genesis says that the earth was created unformed and unfilled. Yet Isaiah says it was created formed and inhabited. So which is it? Well, perhaps it's both. I believe. A gap of time exists between verse 1 and verse 2 in Genesis chapter 1. You know, some folks ask, when did God create the angels? Well, the Bible isn't precise, but in Job chapter 38, God quizzes Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Notice the phrase, sons of God. It's a Hebrew idiom for angelic beings. The implication is that the angels were created before God goes to work on the earth in Genesis 1, verse 2. We also know from the scripture that a top echelon angel, an archangel, if you will, sinned. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12, all describe Lucifer's fall from heaven. The name Lucifer means light bearer. He must have been a radiant creature. This angel was the worship leader in heaven, we're told in Ezekiel, until pride entered his heart. He tried to steal praise and glory from Almighty God. Revelation 12 tells us that a third of the angels joined in Lucifer's revolt. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan like lightning fall from heaven. Let me admit What I'm about to say is speculation, but I think it makes sense. It could be that Lucifer or Satan's fall caused a horrible judgment that damaged God's original creation. 
It left the earth unformed and unfilled. Thus, Genesis 1 verse 2 is essentially the beginning of the recreation of the heavens and the earth. The universe is created out of nothing in verse 1. Between verses 1 and 2, Satan is judged. And in verse 2, God begins his reassembly. It's interesting in Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word translated create is the word bara, which means out of nothing. Whereas in Exodus 21 verse 11, speaking again of God's creation, it reads, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. The term made is the, another Hebrew word, asa, which means to assemble. It's an arranging of pre-existing materials. And if both ideas are put together, it fits the theory. In verse 1, God creates from nothing. While in verse 2, in the aftermath of Lucifer's fall and judgment, God reassembles what he initially created. There is a Hebrew tradition which explains why Lucifer fell. Supposedly, he got wind of God's plan to create man from the dust and give him dominion over all creation. This meant that one day the glorious, radiant Lucifer would be serving dust bunnies, little human hairballs no less. No way could Satan let this happen. And so consumed with pride and envy, he launched an all-out war against God. And where did he strike first? His first move was to try to stop God's reassembly of creation. In Genesis 1 verse 2, darkness, which is the symbol of evil, is on the face of the deep, while God's Spirit is hovering over the waters. It seems that battle lines have been drawn. Job chapter 26 The oldest book written also speaks of creation in a similar yet unexpected way. Verse 7 of Job 26 reads, God hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds. He stirs up the sea with his power and breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Now, here's a curious version of the creation story. God wrestles with a serpent in the sea and pierces him as he flees while God is hanging the earth on nothing and adorning the heavens. Apparently, an arrogant Satan didn't want to serve lowly human beings, and so he tried to thwart God's designs for us. We don't often think of the creation as a battle, But evidently, it was the first skirmish in a long-running war. When you think about it, this is strangely flattering. Despite all the spectacles in our vast universe, the spiritual realm is focused on a single nondescript galaxy, just one of 100 billion. And out of that galaxy's 300 million stars, heaven's attention is on one solitary star, And of that star's nine planets, angels and demons alike are focused on just one of those planets. And of the earth's two million species of living creatures, guess what? All eyes are glued on you. You know, so often human beings feel worthless and bored 
Well, I get up in the morning. But the heavyweights of the universe are locked in mortal combat over us. There is a celestial battle raging, and we, we humans, are the prize. Author Mike Russ puts it, one of the few things God and Satan agree on is that we are immensely valuable. Remember, God is after a relationship with us, and his means of achieving it is through covenant. After God's creation, Satan, as the serpent, appears again. This time in Genesis 3, to tempt mankind. If Satan can't stop God's creation, he'll try to spoil it, which sadly he did. He tempted the man to join in his revolt. And the battle continues to rage down through the centuries. When you study world history, remember there's a backstory not written in the history books. Behind the scenes is an intense war raging for the souls of men and women. Beyond the politics and the conflicts and the personalities and the ambitions is a spiritual war against God being waged by none other than the serpent Satan. And throughout the Bible, we get glimpses of the spiritual battle. Psalm 74 is an example. It describes Israel's exodus from Egypt. The psalmist speaks of the serpent of old in the Red Sea opposing Israel's crossing. The serpent appears again. Revelation 12 fast forwards to the end of the age and depicts the serpent attacking God's people Israel. Even Revelation 13 verse 1, the Antichrist is depicted as a beast rising out of the sea to deceive the entire world. Here's the point. From beginning to end, the Bible is the story of a battle. Satan's desire is to destroy humanity while God is determined to restore humanity to a relationship with him. In a never-failing God ultimately does so through a series of covenants. <clears throat> the first covenant that God made with mankind was in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> God situated Adam and Eve in a Shangri-La, a utopian paradise, an oasis called Eden. They always had plenty of fruit to eat. There were no diseases or strange viruses threatening their health. The man and the woman were a perfect pair. Adam always took out the trash. Can you imagine, ladies? Eve never griped. The first couple never argued. They enjoyed an unbroken harmony and intimacy. They served each other. Imagine, their sinless minds were oblivious to their own needs, so much so that they lived naked and unashamed. Believe it or not, Adam even had a job. He was the caretaker of Eden. Eden had 0% unemployment. God had placed the man in charge of his creation. Adam had dominion and authority. As I mentioned earlier, God stamped the man and the woman with his image. Like God, they were, they were rational and relational and moral and spiritual. And part of God's likeness in them was the authority to rule. Though man is to submit to God, like God, he's been given dominion over nature. And this is what distinguishes Western civilization today from the East. The Christian West was reared on a biblical worldview. 
that God is separate from nature and that he's given human beings the job of subduing and harnessing nature for the benefit of mankind. As a result, Western culture has advanced in technology and in science, whereas the East is dominated by pantheism, that God is part of nature. He's one with nature. Thus, rather than subdue nature, man's role is to become one with his surroundings. This is why cows feed off India's crops while people die of starvation. This is why Indian traffic gets tied up by free-roaming elephants. Hinduism teaches its adherents to deify nature rather than subdue it. Understand a society's religion will either hold it back or help advance its development. Made in God's image. It has multiple meanings, but none is more important than the idea of self-determination. Like God, humans have a free will. We can decide for ourselves. Human beings can choose to love or hate, give or take, bow down or bow up, serve or be selfish, obey or go their own way. And to allow Adam and Eve to live out this aspect of his image, God planted a tree in the garden. He told them that they could eat fruit off any tree in Eden except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them that if they nibbled fruit from this particular tree, this one forbidden tree, they would surely die. There were dozens of trees in Eden that, were, that had edible fruit. God only restricted one. And this is still his practice today. God allows us tremendous liberty. God packs our world with good gifts. Negative things are few and far between. Yet Satan is able to twist the truth. Listen to the tempter. And Satan will have you ignore God's blessings and fixate on the few pleasures that God forbids. Hear how the Satan tempts Eve in Genesis 3 verse 4. First he tempts her to doubt God's word. He says, you will not surely die. Then he tempts her to doubt God's love. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is how he continues to tempt us today, to doubt God's word and to doubt God's love. Satan accuses God of holding Eve back, keeping her down. He labels God a hindrance to the good life. If Eve wants enlightenment, she'll need to shed God's authority, march to her own drummer, find herself. Satan tempts Eve by telling her that she can be like God. Remember, she was already like God. She was God's image bearer. She was like God, but she was not God. And this is what Satan attempts to confuse. It's one thing to reflect God. It's another thing to take his place. Man occupies a rung on the ladder that's always just below God. Try to scale too high, usurp the place of God, act like your own God, and death will result. And die they did. Eventually, both Adam and Eve would die physically. Their sin introduced death into the human gene pool, but first they died spiritually. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he and his wife became separated from God. 
Sin drove a wedge between God and man, between the man and the woman. See, the opening act of the Bible teaches us that life blooms when we trust God, whereas deadness, physical and spiritual death, result when we don't. Rather than freedom, Eve ended up a puppet of Satan and a slave to her own sin. The key to life is not autonomy from God, but dependence on God. I read one author who said that when mankind fell, he fell upwards. He fell upwards. Adam didn't slither into a cesspool of shameful sin. No, he stuck out his chest and tried to ascend to a higher plane, but on his own. In essence, he said he didn't need God. He could be his own God. And this is the mistake scores of people make today. They become educated. Or pride makes them think they know it all. They assume they no longer need God. Theologian John Stott writes, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Well, the covenant that God made in Eden was to test the man's love for him. God placed Adam and Eve in the perfect environment. God made them co-rulers of his world. But he also placed the forbidden fruit within man's reach so Adam could demonstrate his love. Realize for love to be meaningful, it has to be voluntary. You have to choose to love. If you love me but have no other choice, it's a hollow love. If a husband were to take his wedding vows with a shotgun in his back, you'd have to wonder if he truly loved the gal. And that's why God gave Adam a choice. By not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he could prove how much he loved God and trusted God. Instead, Adam chose unbelief. Rather than believe God to have his best interests at heart, Adam saw God as the bad guy. And this is the root of all sin. Do we trust God or doubt him? Do we hope in him or rely on us? And Adam's tragic decision plunged all of mankind into sin. Adam and Eve and their descendants were booted from the garden. Genesis 3 says that a special ops angel guarded the tree of life so that they couldn't return and eat its fruit. For if they had, they would have lived forever in fallen, in a sinful state and condition. It was actually God's grace that blocked their path. Sadly, in Genesis 3, Satan succeeds in breaking up the relationship between God and humanity. I've heard it said Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and ended up in a jam. But God didn't leave them there, He responded. As he always does with a covenant. The Bible teaches that God is never content without a relationship with mankind. Despite our willfulness, God is always warning and wooing and working to restore us. At each turn, a God-given covenant comes to our rescue. It'll take another covenant conceived by God to renew Adam's hope of salvation And we'll look at the Adamic covenant when we meet next week. Hey, let's finish tonight in prayer. Father, thank you. 
for your word to us this evening. Lord, I pray that we uh, 